And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. And thanks again for uh, checking in with me on Twitter, at Brian Koppelman, for the reviews and, and ratings you're giving uh, the show on iTunes. I love hearing from you, and I'm so glad that the show uh, is connecting. It's, uh, it's a great feeling to know that we're you know, engaged in this conversation. I am about to engage in a conversation that uh, I'm excited about for a variety of reasons, one of which is I do not know my guest, uh, Hank Steinberg, at all. I mean, I know his work. Uh, he, at a young age, he wrote 61, uh, the great HBO movie uh, starring Barry Pepper and Thomas Jane about um, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. He created Without a Trace, ran that show, I think, for years. Maybe at the beginning he wasn't the showrunner, but he created it. He has a show that is debuting. Uh, I think probably one or two episodes will have aired by the time you hear this. And that show is The Last Ship on TNT, which seems wildly different from his other work. And I'm really curious uh, about, you know, this guy who um, has really, it seems to me, had nothing but a really big success at this. And the fact that he, he keeps doing it and keeps uh, keeps investing himself in television and in wanting to take these long journeys with characters and worlds. And uh, I guess I found out he, he grew up, I think, 10 minutes from where I grew up. So although we don't know each other, uh, I imagine we've had, in certain ways, a similar experience getting to, uh, getting to here. So he'll be here in a couple of seconds, uh, and uh, I can't wait to talk to him. Thanks. Hank, thanks for being here, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Do you, how often do you get back to New York? Uh, I bought a place here a few years ago at the bottom of the market, thankfully. Yeah, uh, good. So well done. My realtor keeps calling me, asking me if I want to, turn, if I want to sell it and flip it. Um, I'm like, no, I, I think New York's going to be around for a while. So uh, um, we get here, I don't know, five or six times a year. Oh, that, oh, that's great. Do you miss it at all? Or do you feel like uh, you're raising, do you have kids? I have two kids. So you're raising them in L.A.? Raising them in L.A., I think I think the deadline I set for myself for that was up until my eldest is ten, and then we have to get out. Yeah, is that true? Is yeah. that what you told yourself? That is what I told myself. Whether, uh, you, I, you, you, whether you, I stick to it, we'll gonna, see. Yeah, what do you think? He's five and a half, so I got some time. All right, that's good. But you you made it. But it has been on your mind. It, it's some, something you've considered. It is something I've considered. I'm not sure if New York is the final you know resting place. Um, having been through the traumas and travails of uh, applying to private schools and stuff, it's. <laughs> That's a hell of a of a kind that no one can understand until they've been through it. You mean applying in in L.A.? Yeah, and I'm sure it's. I, I, oh, from what yeah. I'm told it's ten times worse here. So. Oh, I'm sure that it. Is. I mean, yeah, I have I have two kids, but they're older. I have an 18 year old and a 14 year old, and um, they they do both. Uh, my son just graduated, but my daughter's still in private school in in Manhattan. But now we both grew up. I think we grew up like 10 minutes from one another. I'm I'm a great necker. I grew up in Roslyn. There you go. The clock, and, the clock tower. Yeah, Ra- well, you must raffles have gone. sweet potato fries. Well, yeah, that's a nice way to say it. Raffles yeah. where they would serve you if you were 17. <laughs> Alcohol. <laughs> that was another reason why we went, yeah. I'm going to say that nobody was going to raffles for the food, Hank. Sweet potato fries were really good. They were? With the beer. Yeah, I don't remember the fries so well, and I grew up much closer. Then you, my writing and directing partner, Levine, he also is from Great Neck. I didn't realize that. He went to North. And I'm eighty, class of eighty-seven. So at he, no, North, at North, he's eighty-nine. Oh wow! So was Jeff Levine in your class? Wait, don't worry, we're, we're going to get to show business. But was Jeff Levine in your class? I don't remember him. 
How old maybe is he? he was my year, 88. He was maybe either 88 or 89. Or 87. 88 or 87. Okay, so I'm here with Hank Steinberg, who is, as I said, you know, one of the most uh, successful guys in the TV game. And, um, you know, grew up a mere 10 minutes from me and is about to um, launch this this television show. I watched the pilot and uh, I thought it was excellent, Hank. Congratulations. Thank you very much. How did... Uh, we're going to get to this show and, and how it came to be. But, um, you know, this... this this podcast um, is really about, you know, exploring um, how people like you, uh, creative people, people who've accomplished remarkable things, have uh, have processed big moments in their lives. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your path was to growing up kind of far away from show business. Um, many more people in the garment business near where you grew up. In Kvetnik, yeah. Yeah, than in the business of show. I mean, what was your what was your path like? How did you get from there to, to here? Well, I think the the long story short version is um, I grew up with a love of movies and and television, and um, I think you know I really related emotionally to having those experiences when you know from watching Ordinary People and Great Santini when I was at 11, the 11, 12 at years the old at Squire Theater. Uh, you know, on my you know on my oh, my eight thousand pound VCR, you know, right. with the you know six inch videotape, um, and I think somewhere inside of me, I always felt that I wanted to be a writer. I was you know the editor of the school magazine, and um, and then when I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, um, I was a pretty dedicated sports writer. That was that was my thing, and that's where I thought I was going. Um, but I was in the meantime, I was taking all these film classes and. Um, and it didn't, I didn't really know that, um, that was something, you know, people do. I think now in 2014, where everyone is an amateur filmmaker, um, you know, on their phones yeah, and people can make these films and throw them on iTunes and everyone sort of thinks I can, I can be a filmmaker, you know, growing up in Long Island in the seventies and eighties, that was not, it, it seemed like a crazy thing to do. Yeah. I mean, nobody had a camera. No. Uh, and um, nobody had a camera, and it seemed. And I grew up, you know, I grew up with a dad in the music business, so I was aware that there was this thing called show business. Uh, but the movie business, and just being an artist who could make movies, those people just seemed t entirely like a, of a different species. Like they, they all seemed like they dressed like David Byrne or something. And, yes. Uh, they weren't going to the Yankees or Mets games like we were. They were just different sorts of people, right? Yeah, they were sort of the weird artsy types, and and you know, and you know, the audiovisual department of my high school, like you know, everyone dressed in black, and you know, I I didn't <laughs> yeah, even, I mean, didn't even know what that was. I mean, I was a theater guy. I, I would play. On the, I played sports, and I was on in in on teams. Um, but it just seemed like the theater thing would have to go away to me. Like that wasn't real. I couldn't think, see how that could possibly be. Uh, a, a career. career, yeah, and and so you thought, who were your sports writing heroes? Like, who did you grow up reading and thinking, oh, th that's what I want to do? Um, let's see. Growing up, I mean, ESPN didn't exist yet. I, I think I would read the New York Times. Um, uh, Lupica, um, yeah. you know, was great, um, and so that seemed like you know the thing I was going to do. And um, and who, who you who which teams were you sort of like Yan most Yankees, rabid Yankee fan? Yeah. Um, Giants, Rangers, um, 
and actually the Pittsburgh Steelers because I was nine years old in 1979, and Jets and the Giants sucked, and yeah. everybody that I knew was either rooting for the Steelers or the Cowboys. Cowboys yeah. yeah, so I picked Steelers, yeah. and I gave up on them after Roethlisberger started assaulting women in, in sports bars. Oh, so you were a Steelers fan right up until six, five, six years ago? I'm a Scorpio, so I'm a crazily loyal, savagely loyal, you know, person, or maybe I just don't, don't want to admit that I was wrong. But uh, so I held on to the Steelers for another 30 years until uh, until he, you know, until their star player, you know, do, started do you have, doing that. And I have a daughter, so that, that just doesn't mix. Do you have no uh, football team now? You it, was always I mean, the, it was always like Steelers and Giants were sort of the 1A, number two, so, so now the Giants are Now you're Giants. Yeah. yeah. I'm a Jets fan and a Knicks fan. It's brutal. That is hard. And I'm a Yankees fan, but my uh, my kids, my son, he's a huge sports fan, but he doesn't care about baseball. So I'm just, I used to be a giant Yankee fan, and I can't even really, I, I don't really watch anymore. It kills me. Well, the hardest thing about being a Yankee fan in the last, you know, since they got Clemens was sort of... Them bringing on these big free agents that you really had a hard time rooting for, but you had to because they were wearing the uniform. You know, with Clemens and A-Rod, who just never really felt like Yankees and never really felt like Yankee guys. Other guys that they brought in, like Johnny Damon, you felt like... Even though he came even though from he was the Red, Red Sox. Sox he yeah. just he felt like a Yankee because the way he played and how he carried himself and... And, um, you know, I like Ellsbury, you know. Was right, and you're not a metrics guy who thinks uh, Johnny Damon was overrated, the way that all those guys think that he he was if you watch the games you see how people play and when they deliver and what they do and so i'm not a huge believer in statistics because i think even Derek jeter is underrated if you just look at the metrics and 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 they're they're the small things that that they do that don't show up in the in in the i I, I mean you and billy crystal must absolutely be best friends (laughs) i mean we're we're very close you guys must see the world we spend a lot of time together you do right yeah you must see the world exactly the same way like uh one of you must speak and the other guy must just nod his head that's right we we did a lot of that way back when in the late 90s you did right yeah well we'll get to that so um before you so you're at penn you're gonna be a sports writer and and what happens what makes you suddenly think this is something that's accessible or, or, or possible. Well, it's a strange confluence of events, I think. I actually have to give a lot of credit to uh, Stephen Kane, who I went to college with, and we, we were in the same dorm freshman year, and uh, he came in um, saying, I'm going to be a film director. And uh, I had never even heard anybody talk like that before, ever. And, um, and you know, we grew up together. We were roommates for the whole four years of, of college, and now... 25 or whatever years later we created the show the, the show together last ship which is coming on soon um and so you know we were very tight and and that sort of had an influence on me we were in all the same film classes together but i was still sort of on the sports writing track and um i went did a semester abroad in israel of all places and it was weird it was i was away for six months and and i realized the thing that i was missing was TV and movies, TV and movies. And so I started going to the movies, which are, you know, the Israelis are really into movies in, in Tel Aviv. And uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape came out that year. It was 1989. It was a huge yeah. hit in Tel Aviv. Huge hit. You know, they're very edgy and progressive in in, in Israel. And um, I went and saw that movie five times in like three weeks. And I was so inspired by it. I said, okay, screw it. This is what I'm going to do. Oh, that's I'm, awesome. I'm going to be a screenwriter, director, whatever. And I was a junior, and I came back, told my parents, and uh, 
they said, not going to be a lawyer or a doctor. And I said, not going to be a lawyer or a doctor. Oh, um, that's right. You made the decision right then between right then your sophomore and junior year. You, during my junior during year. During your junior year, you made that decision. There's something about when you're away yeah. from all your other normal influences and normally your, your other structures that a, a kind of uh, clarity and kind of purity of, uh, of being removed from all your other influences can really help you see things clearly. And so that's what happened. Did it come to you like um, like um, a sudden burst of knowledge or was it like a little voice that grew bigger the more you thought about it? it I think it was a little voice that was in my subconscious and unconscious yeah. for years and that it was able to allow, just came out to the forefront and, and then I just said, well, f*** it, I'm, I'm allowed to do this and I'm going to do this. And you always knew you were a writer. So yes. you, didn't have ins- you didn't have sort of like the insecurity of, well, am I going to be able to produce pages or can I do it? Um, even though you were thinking about writing fictional things, you just felt like, okay, I can turn all of that, the skill I've worked on towards this. And did you think about the, like to yourself, oh, this is going to be hard? No, I mean, because I was so naive. I'm 19, year, I'm 19 years old. So what I thought was I go to, you know, Soderbergh's movie was brilliant, but I go and see all these other movies that suck. Yeah. And I said, well, I can do better than that. Yeah, I can do better than that. It's such a powerful right? force, isn't it? And like, these movies are getting made. I can do better than that. And, you know, of course, I had no idea how difficult it is to learn how to write, uh, you know, even a decent screenplay. Yeah, it's challenging to learn how to do that in the beginning. Um, and uh, and I don't know whether it can even be taught. I, I think it can't. Really. I think you have to just, it's the kind of thing you, you have to throw yourself, immerse yourself in and do and read a bunch of scripts, right? I don't know how, what your process was. I mean, how did you go about... Uh, did you start then, or did you start after? Like when you know, by the, and when I saw Sex Lesson videotape, I realized uh, I said the years wrong. I was thinking of college graduations. You're younger than me. you're three years younger than I am. I graduated high school '84, so you graduated high school '87. '87, yeah, right. Um, so I was working, and the first movie premiere I was ever invited to it was a coworker of mine gave me tickets to Sex Lies and Videotape at the Zigfield. Oh, that must have been awesome. And I was yeah, I went to that movie uh, with my uh, the, a girlfriend at the time, and. Uh, on that, music feels the best, been the best theater screen in, in New York for as long as I've been right. al- al- alive. And I remember watching it also. Uh, maybe there are seven movie going experiences in my life that are like the one where I saw Sex Lies and Videotape. Um, it stayed with me for weeks and weeks. And I couldn't see it again because that was the premiere. And then it didn't come out for another like two weeks. There wasn't. Uh, and then I went and saw it again. I couldn't believe it. And when I got to make a couple of movies with Soderbergh, it, it was like, you know, incredibly seminal experience because uh his work was so just so crucially important it was so specific and so personal and so you just you were in it you're inside it and brave too right you could see why a guy like you who had this secret desire that's interesting right i mean it's a movie about acknowledging your secret desires that's true and there's such a bravery in it and it's so it's so ballsy that yeah i guess i think probably you're right unconsciously i was like that guy just made this movie for like a nickel, you know, about four people in a bunch of rooms, you know, yeah. and uh, and it's absolutely mesmerizing. Yeah, and um, it's all about owning what you really are on the inside. Yeah, um, I mean, he would not say that, but because he he will never uh, he'll never tell you what any of it's about. But right, it's got to, it's partially about we're all kind of freaks in a certain way, and you just put that out, you know. That's right. Be what you are, and then do your best to be honorable, despite whatever your needs are. Right. Uh, so what you did you start writing right away? So I came back, um, I came back to to Penn, and then uh, 
um, that summer, I went out between junior and senior year. Um, I went out, came out to LA, and had got an internship at Warner Brothers. I was I had two jobs. I was reading scripts for Joe Dante, who was just coming off Gremlins, right? And then I spent three weeks as a PA slash intern on Growing Pains, the Kirk Cameron <laughs> show. So I was on the Warner's lot. Uh, right next to Albert Brooks and Joel Silver in that area there, and uh, and then I was at the ranch, you know, going to get coffee for Kirk Cameron and Alan Thicke and stuff. And it was, so it was a it was a fun experience. I went back to Penn, like, okay, I'm going to L.A. It was sunny, it was amazing, it, you know, it yeah, was the opposite so different. of what it was so different. I was in West Philly. <laughs> no Eagles fans to deal with. No, I mean, in West Philly was not not a great place in the late '80s. Um, so that that was amazing, and then. I went back to Penn, and I, I owed a senior thesis because I was an English major, and I convinced the English department to let me write a screenplay instead of instead of a short story, a novelette, or which was something else you could do. But they had no one... Who could read it? They had no teacher who was really qualified to be my advisor, so I had to look around. Turned out uh, Romulus Linney, who's a pretty famous playwright at that point, and Laura Linney's father... Um, I don't know his plays. Um, you know, I think he was sort of, you know, intellectual, um, you know, a little bit, you know, um, she, he wasn't, wasn't, he wasn't on Broadway every other year. She's but. one of the most specific, excellent actresses of our whole time. I'd exactly. love to read. I didn't even know her dad was a, a playwright. Yeah, I, I gotta, no, I, I didn't even find, realize. I'll go track down one of his plays. So I you, didn't realize he had a daughter who was going to be famous in right. 1990 either. Right. Um, so... Uh, he was great. He he was actually teaching at Columbia, but he would come into Penn once a week as a guest lecturer. So I was able to convince the department to let him qualify as my advisor. And then uh, I had an acting and directing teacher who became the second reader. And so I, I wrote a script, uh, which, you know, God knows where it is now. Or <laughs> and Had you had the idea? Like, you knew what you wanted to do? It was do? a baseball movie. It was a totally hacky, cliched you know, but, uh, you it, but even, I finished no, it. No, you but can't I even. You, I was 21. Even, I finished it. It's not even know. fair to call something you do when you're 20 or 21 those things. You're just reaching and trying the best you can. It had you a structure that made sense. Let's put yeah, it that way. You're trying so. to tell a story. I mean, you're yeah. just trying to tell the story with whatever tools that you have. At at uh, you know, yeah. it's the very rare, very incredibly rare exception who's able to at 20 or 21. You know, I mean, J.J. Abrams did it, but there aren't many people who really have the capacity to to turn that kind of work out that's professional. Did you like writing it? Yes, I enjoyed writing it. More than you enjoyed writing columns and those things? Uh, it didn't come nearly as naturally. Because, right. you know, sports, if you're a sports fan from when you're six years old and you've been listening to sports commentators for hours every week, you just know that language. Right. Um, so it took, you know, it took years to figure out the actual craft of... Of, of writing a script and it, it's it's um did you go to hollywood and work did you so when you went out there were you working right away how did you break in uh, i finished school and drove out drove out girls drove cross country with a couple of friends and uh a bunch of us all moved in together um in, including my buddy steve and um and i just started you know schlepping around you know whose whose cousin do i know and you know and uh, so it was about five years of getting random jobs, PA jobs, assistant jobs, temp jobs. Are you writing the whole and time? And I'm writing on the side, writing on weekends, writing Trying to night, get an agent? Trying to get an agent, trying to get anyone I know to read stuff. No, I think this stuff's important because people always want to know. I mean, you had five years 
you're saying where you didn't have an agent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where you were writing and getting nothing back. Right. No positive, very little positive encouragement some, back? No, some positive feedback. What some, would it be? Some little bites, you know, from producers. I like this script and then, you know, nothing would ever happen with it. Um, so many people say, well, if I only had the time, I would write. So when were you writing? Nights, weekends, or I would accumulate enough in my bank account to quit whatever job I had and take two months off and then then write full time. And then when I'd run out of money, I'd get another job. How'd you keep your confidence? Um, I don't think I was confident. I just think I, I could not fathom losing. I, I could not fathom it admitting defeat so i think i was driven more by a fear of failure a than, lot of your characters a lot of your characters uh have that characteristic don't you think I, it's something i relate to yeah. i mean yeah you're leading your lead the people you're interested in it seems to me are very often people like that a certain kind of dogged determination that they're going to find their way through um even if it seems very difficult you know i mean look at without a trace yes uh and look at maris <laughs> Even though he's a real life character. Yes. No, uh, I'm a. Tr I'm a. Tr and people who maybe don't think of themselves as remarkable, we may think that, but they don't usually think that. No, they just think they're doing what they're doing, um, and they don't know any other way. You know. Um, so. So that's what it felt like to you. It felt like to me like I have to do this. There's no, you know, there's just not going to be. Did you think about things like, uh, do I have, you know, when you would see now you're 26, 25, when you see other people, would you think, did you wonder if you had the talent to to do it or you just felt like if I keep grinding at this, I'm going to solve it? No, I think there were plenty of times where I wondered if I had the talent or actually, I think I felt that I had the the talent somewhere inside of me and and something to say. But I did wonder at times why I didn't have the ability to access it. That's but, wonderful. Yeah. You felt like, I mean, that's a feeling a lot of poets have written about. You, you had this idea that that there was this special thing in you, and you just couldn't... Couldn't pull it out. It's the James Cameron thing of only, if you could only be seen, right? In, like, uh, right. Avatar. Right. The idea of someone could, if there was a way for you to just show what was going on... And so how did you finally begin to access it, do you think? Um, what I did was I wrote about something that I was really passionate about and not try to write to the marketplace or to sell us back. Oh, so were you trying to game it at first, partially? A little bit, sure. Yeah, I wrote an action thing that I thought was kind of crass. I mean, I tried to make it smarter than the rest of it. Sure, but, yeah, but, I'm not even saying, but, yeah. I'm not saying it um, in any way, to, in any sort of um, judgmental way. No. A lot of people do that. But, but uh, I... I I always feel like it's um, it's actually it seems it's counterintuitive, but I always think that's the the sort of uh, lowest chance for success is to try to calculate what the market's going to want. There's no question. There's no question. So it just so happened, I think that the time at which I decided to write the script that I was meant to write was also I had written five or six screenplays by then and so I had also learned enough about the craft to be able to execute it properly so it was a you know it was a confluence of those two things and that was 61 or was no, it the RFK that, movie or what no was those it? things came after this was a script called The Duel which was about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr and their friendship and rivalry and um, I uh, 
you would say that's something that came from you, but it was something. No, that's a phenomenal idea for. A, I mean, that's great. I've never seen. Did it get made? It didn't get made. It's it's been developed. HBO bought it for a time. I mean, it's I've one of the great on stories. It, ever. No, it is uh, one of the someday. greatest stories ever written. Now, my favorite version of it is that drunk version of it. I'm sure you've seen those guys yes. yeah. who did the drunken, crazy theater version of it. Yeah, uh, that kills me. But um, so you you wrote that on spec. I wrote that on spec. I I had heard. Do you remember those old records uh, that used to have, like, the radio shows? Sure. So, literally, I had been in love with this story since I was 9 or 10 years old. I had rented one of these historical records from the Great Neck Library, and and it was, like, the seven-minute radio show of the duel between Hamilton and Burr. And the idea that the sitting vice president of the United States had taken another former cabinet member and the guy that had written the Constitution into a field and had killed him and yeah. then had gone on the lam... It's like, that's a crazy story. So, And then it turned out they had known each other since they were teenagers and had grown up together and were rivals over 20 years. So I you know, managed to... It just was something I was really passionate about and um, I felt like I could sink my teeth into. And, um, and it was enough removed from me that it was it was sort of personal but not. And, um, and that script got a lot of... Um, great reads. Right, and, there wasn't a I, blacklist then, but if, if there were a blacklist then, it, this would have been on high up on it. Everyone was reading it in town. Everyone was reading it. I, I got signed off of that by, uh, by, it was Endeavor at that point. They had three three guys in that little office above islands, and, and um, now they're, you know, the behemoth that they are, but yeah, uh, but yeah then, and then off of that I started to get work. Right, and then how did, so, and then how did 61 come to happen? Um, off of the dual script, I got a job uh, working on Oliver Stone produced miniseries at HBO, uh, which was called Patriots, which was an eight-hour thing about these guys. So it was either the perfect right example at the perfect time. It was just really lucky. I got in the, the room with the right people and the right the right time, and uh, Danny Halstead took a chance on me, and um, um, and the HBO people took a chance on me, and you know they liked my work on it, and then I had this relationship, and then I went in and pitched 61, uh, the Colin calendar, and... and uh, and you pitched it as an original idea, mm-hmm. they bought it, and then you were off and, and running. Right. They bought it, I was off and running, and then, you know, they brought in Billy after, uh, a little bit after and ended up developing it with him. And, you and know. were you on set of that movie? I was, the whole time. What did that feel like to you to be on set with the Yankees? It was crazy. I mean, amazing. I mean, you know, it was it was so artfully shot and so specific, and the details were incredible, and we shot the stadium stuff in Tiger Stadium, old Tiger Stadium in Detroit, yeah. which they put the facade on, you know, in the outfield um, to make, and it looked like the old Yankee Stadium. It was, and, and it was, and Tom Jane and Barry Pepper looked like Marison Mantle, and it was just, uh, you did, felt like you were back in time. I mean, I'm wondering, did the first day that that started, that you actually were making it, did it feel to you like a big moment in your life? Like oh, I, like- I knew it was a huge moment. I brought a video camera. I saved the oh, call sheet. Did? I mean, yeah. I mean, the first roll of film that's ever shot of something you've written, you mean, you know, it's like having a kid. I mean, you, you, you know, it's one of those moments in life. It's important, and you know it's important, you know. And did you sense, oh, my life's going to be different from here on out? Yes. Yeah, I, I thought it has to be. Did you buy like get an apartment? Like, did you do? I, must, you, I think I upgraded. You did. I think so. Good. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember back. But, but you think you like were okay? I'm 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 doing this thing now. I felt like I'm in the club. Yeah. That must have been a great feeling. I mean, of course, if the movie had turned out like shit, I would have been quickly out of the club. Well, but, yeah, we had but, plenty. Of, yeah, Doug Allen tells a great story about that uh, about how he 
you know, his first movie and how it was made, everyone said, oh, you're, you're going to be uh, huge in town. And he bought a bit, and then, you know, <laughs> the movie didn't open, and right. he couldn't get a call return for a year and a half. Uh, but but you happen to have been right. Uh, Billy took care of you. Yeah, he, he did a great, amazing job. Really and did a wonderful job with that film. Um, and then how did, you know, I, I was, uh, I think the, the one time you and I met, maybe we met twice, but once, I want to say it was at Brockheimer, right after you had set up Without, Without a, a trace. trace. Right. And um, can you talk about how, how because this, this, this road that led you here now to... Uh, really started him. Mean, your guy watched Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And then, you know, you've made network television for a long time at a very high level. What, how did it How did it happen that this is where you decided you wanted to li like live? Completely by accident. You know, I was... Uh, completely by accident. I was... Off of 61, my future career was going really well. I was um, doing RFK at um, at FX, which ended up getting made the next year. Um, that I'm really proud of, even though nobody saw it. Um, <coughs> um, I was working on a feature for Lawrence Kasdan, who was, you know, huge, huge hero. Wait, RFK starred that British guy, right? Linus Roche. He's great. Linus yeah, Roche. It's, it's a great. terrific movie. Thank I you. I remember Linus doing it, and I think that's what led to him getting cast as lawyers on a couple of TV mm -hmm, shows mm -hmm. afterwards. Uh, he's terrific. That is a, a powerhouse performance that he gives. Yeah, he, in that and he's thing. great. He was nominated for an Emmy. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I he, totally yeah. remember that. So that was going. Your feature career was picking up. Yeah, I was doing something for Kasdan, who was a you know big hero. Um, I was working on the duel for HBO, um, and the fourth thing I was doing in this incredibly crazy time when I and I was in I was living in New York at the time. Actually, I was, I was kind of bouncing back and forth. That was what I did when I got in the club. I got an apartment in New York. Oh, that's when you got an apartment So I became bi-coastal. Yes. I didn't upgrade my L.A. apartment. I got a New York apartment. Good for and you. And I started going Great. back and forth. Yeah. Um, I remember it was Thanksgiving and it was snowing and I was like under deadline on these four different things. What and was the fourth one? The fourth one was Without a Trace. Really? The least important thing to me, by the way. How did Without a Trace come to happen? Because it was one of the beginning of Bruckheimer's tell... I mean, you could trace... Bruckheimer's television dynasty to whatever that first meeting with you was, right? You were the first. Well, he had CSI, 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 and then CSI your first. show was second. Right. Still, you were there. But you were there before CSI Miami. Yes. Or maybe you went on the same time. Same time, or maybe a year before. Right. Um, so how did it? How did it happen? So, I, I can't take any of the credit for it, really. Um, you know, my TV agent, Ari Greenberg, had uh, said, you, you know, you ought to do a pilot. And, uh, All agents talk like that, yeah. by the way. And I was like, okay. And he said, all right. So he got me a blind deal at CBS. And I went in and pitched my college basketball show. And they were like, uh, no, we don't really do that. And I was so busy with other things, I didn't really come back to them with anything. I think I might have said, let's do a summer camp show. Yeah. And they were like, uh, we don't really do that. And then uh, I got a call from one of Aries' colleagues, uh, Lisa Harrison. And uh, she said... Hey, Bruckheimer has this idea. It's about missing people, you know, and uh, team that looks for them. And um, what do you think? And I said, I don't know why. I just I said that seems like a cool idea. Let me let me go in and talk to them. So I sat down with Jonathan Littman, and um, we it's the Sandra Le Chandra Levy thing had just happened, and what we talked about was what happened when she went missing was that 
all these layers of her character and the secrets that yes. she had came out. Yes. And that became the underpinning of the show. That's what I sunk my teeth into. It was not like, there's a body, let's solve the crime. It's, there's a person missing, you got a ticking clock, you got a sense of urgency, are they going to be alive or dead, that gives it a whole so other thing. So they came to you just with the one-liner, we're interested right. in missing in missing persons cases. Right. And then you said, but I'm, I'm interested in it if the world feels like this. Well, Jonathan, to his credits, he was the one that raised the, the Chandra Levy thing and said this was it was interesting to him about the the sort of secrets that the liner and, and what and that's made what you spark and you sparked to that. I hooked into it immediately because it felt to me like I just saw that there's sort of a a ghostly kind of thing about walking through someone's apartment when they're gone and nobody knows where the hell they are and and. That image just grabbed me right away. The fact, the idea of someone's walking down the street and, and you know, we came up with that I- image of, of, and then they vanish and you don't know where they are and, and they could be you anywhere. You came up with that visual sort of uh, expression of it in yes. the writing. I'm saying that, that happened in the writing and as you were conceiving of the show. Yes. Um, That's because people don't, you know, I think a lot of times people don't understand the role that the writer, in in television, those ideas mostly all emanate from the creator of the show. Yes. So, and that to me became, and then also, you know, the the drama of the sense of the, the loss that's experienced by the people that have, that, that, that the husbands, the brothers, the sisters of the people that are missing. And so, to me, it felt like, it can be a suspense thriller, but it's very, very emotional. And that that's what drew me to it. Because I would not have wanted to do Let's Solve the Murder. Right. Um, it's just such a different thing. So, um, that, so that allowed you to lock in. But you didn't say to yourself, this is going to change my family's fortunes, my life. Everything's going to be different from this moment forward. It was the fourth most important thing awesome. of the four things that I was doing. And, and I actually, I wrote the first draft in like two weeks. And... and it, you know, turned it in, and everyone loved it. Did you have a sense when you wrote it that that it was like um, of a hot, of a for some reason had the mark uh, on it that it was no, no. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. I, mean, I thought it was structurally sound, and 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 then I I got the call from um, from Littman. I think it was on January second. It was the first script that Les Moonves had picked up at CBS of that season. And he said, come back to L.A. And I, I had just met a girl in uh, in New York. It was right after 9-11. Everyone was wanting yeah. to couple. And I had just met someone. I was going to move to New York permanently. And, it's and funny, I get this call, come back to L.A. And I've never looked back since. Did she come with you to... She ended that's, up moving, who you ma- that's who you married? No. Ah. She ended up moving out with me and... Uh, and then left. I think me working 14 hours a day on well, the show for the next two years wasn't, wasn't so I, great. I was going to ask you about that workload that you're still willing to put yourself through in, in a second. But I remember that uh, it must have been weird to you because when 9-11, one of the, you know, 9-11, um, Chandra Levy stopped being a news story when that happened. And were you guys, did you wonder if it was still going to have resonance? When the world so shifted... And we started really thinking about these super important global things for the next three years. Um, or, or were you guys already just rolling and it didn't? We were rolling and it didn't. And then, you know, of course, there were all those missing posters that were such a, uh iconic yes. image from, from yes. 9-11. So even though there were, I think there was something poignant in that. And we actually, you know, wrote, uh, you know, a couple of episodes during that first season that dealt with 9-11 that, you know, were still two of my favorite episodes that we ever did. Um 
So and if you somehow are young and or, and missed uh, that show, it's it's on all the time. You can find it. It's still, still on Ion TV, and then you know it's in a lot of local markets. And you know, I'm all sure it's findable on iTunes, Netflix, yeah. various seasons of it. And yeah. it's worth checking out. It's an uh, there's a reason it was on Thank the air you. for so many years. Now you um. You were the creator of the show and executive producer of the show, but at first you weren't the showrunner of that show, right? Right. And I'm wondering what that, how that felt to you. Were you, did you want to run the show? I mean, eventually you ran the show, but what what was that, uh, what was that like as a, a you know young person? You have a network show, and you, and you were always told, well, then you'll be the king because you're the writer uh, on TV, and you you weren't the king, and a lot of people were credit grabbing on that. Uh, I mean, people who knew knew it was your thing, but a lot of people were trying to grab a lot of credit. How did you process all that? Well, it's interesting that you say that because maybe I was so inside of it, I didn't, I didn't actually really feel that. I felt that I was dealt with really generously by everyone involved. Um, you know, Jonathan was really took me under his wing. I mean, from the moment that he called me on January second, said, "No, you're right. not staying in New York. You're coming back to L.A. and you're going to produce this pilot." And you know, I didn't realize that my life was changing, but well, I think Well, I guess it's just that it was called Jerry Bruckheimer's Without a Trace. Right. And that they, the the press and sort of the way that anyone would review it or talk about it, your name would be there, but it wasn't, you know, most of the time a show is really associated with the guy who writes the show, but that show was really considered Jerry Bruckheimer's. It was coming off of the behemoth success yeah, uh, of CSI. Yeah, and that's really what I'm saying. But you yes. felt it didn't matter to you. You were covered. You were doing it. I, you know, was so busy running the show that I, I wasn't so worried about that. And 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 I was getting so much of the value of that. I mean, I had his infrastructure and his team to help out to help with the production of the pilot, which you know needed some help. And we were given. The time slot right after CSI, which was the golden time slot, it was a, a great perspective that you had. You were able to just look at all the positives from it, which yeah. were enormous. Yeah, well, yes, for the Bruckheimer thing, that was easy. I was getting so much, um, so many of the assets and the and the attention and and the great time slot and everything else from him. So no, I, I never even thought about that. If I hadn't had been paired with. And another executive producer who was as generous as Ed Redlick was, who was the one that I ended up being paired with, it might be a different story because you hear about this story all the time. A young feature writer doesn't know TV. They pair him or her with, you know, an experienced showrunner and, the sh- and that showrunner just wants to grab the show and make it theirs and box out box out the creator. And that, that didn't happen. That never happened. And to Jonathan's credit, he managed it really well, you know, I was there during the pilot helping to produce it, you know, obviously, you know, treated as if I had done it before, involved in all the casting, you know, decisions. And, you know, there were times when everyone loved this one actress and I said, I don't like her. And that was that. It was, it, it, it I never got pushed. Um, and, and Jonathan had me meet with four showrunners. Um, and he let, and he said, these are four people that we like, that CBS likes. And he let me choose. Who right. I wanted to and be paired with. talking about what the showrunner's responsibilities are. So, which what responsibilities did you have? Running the writing room was your responsibility, I imagine. Basically, from the beginning, um, I more or less did everything. I really more or less did everything with Ed there to help. You know, to field the network calls to sort of help guide me through the process. And you know, Ed never he was great. He he never wanted. 
he never wanted to take the show. He always said, it's my show. And I wrote, you know, after the pilot, I wrote the next two episodes. Yes. It was very clear that my voice was the, you know, the voice of the show. But he was very, very helpful in the writer's room. I mean, I so clearly remember it because everyone, a lot of people were rooting for you. I mean, I remember everyone would always say you were such mm -hmm. a good dude. And uh, that's why I remember when, when we met the once and then maybe one other time, everyone always was like, this guy has such a good head on his shoulders. And... Uh, they were also happy for you that you were oh, having nice. this, that you were having this moment, this success. And I remember watching those first couple of episodes and just feeling like, well, a good, you know, uh, a good guy is uh, oh, getting you. this. But I do also remember feeling like unsure how I would be, um, not um, being the only one, you know, my, with my partner Dave, but not being the only person in charge of running it. But harder for me, uh, coming from features and just always being this sort of central or often creative voice up to right. and sometimes maybe you hand it off to a director if I'm not directing or producing. So I think it's amazingly great that you were able to just sort of like, you know, some people, no matter whom they were paired with, they would villainize that person. And you instead look to say, well, I can learn from this person. It's a well, great characteristic. It, so much, <clears throat> there's so much to do also. You need the help. I mean, you know, on a television show, first year trying to produce 22 episodes, I mean, you you need the help. Um, so, um, and I remember, you know, I was actually a co-EP the first nine episodes and I remember, I still remember a very, very special moment. Uh, Ed invited me over to his house and this just shows you about Ed's generosity. Um, Ed and Jonathan invited me over to the house and they opened up a bottle of champagne and I said, what are you doing? And they said, you know you're going to be an executive producer from episode nine on in. Uh, it's you're, wonderful, You're man. doing the job. And, and they even said we had to go to bat with Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers does not like to do this as a precedent. But everyone knows what you're doing. And, you know, it's crazy that you shouldn't be acknowledged for it. And, you know, with other people, that definitely would not have happened. So then the show works and becomes this incredibly successful thing. Um, and you'd had some success before, and obviously we're earning a living. You were still not – how old were you when you – the show 32 when it aired right and so pretty soon on you knew that you were gonna uh, be in a position to have the kind of money maybe you never thought you would what did were you able to process that uh how did you how did you process i honestly it? had no idea i didn't i still didn't even know what do you mean you didn't know until like i was naive i didn't know what the back end was going to be worth or any of that i didn't know i was working my ass off just trying to make it great and there's a huge lesson in that i i i, I didn't i had no idea i mean i even remember remember in a in a exhausted and completely worn down state of affairs in the middle of season two having lunch with my agent saying i i don't know if i can keep doing it like this <laughs> And he said, you're hanging in there because there's a lot coming to you down the line. And I just didn't even know what he was talking about. He just said, you got to vest. You got to vest. Because yeah, you got to do two years on yeah. a show to vest. And then if you can get another two, you've really vested. A hundred, I mean, just in general. Though, yeah. I'm just, uh, and uh, at the time that you created that show, it was sort of towards the end of when, if you create a show like that and stay with it for a number of years, when they sell it into syndication, it's you really can, worth something. It's really yeah. worth your all the time and the fourteen-hour days and the busted relationships, um, and and all that stuff. Were you still passionate about it the last year you were on it? Um, that was year four. I did halfway through year four, and I was ready to move on. Um, I, I was I was I was tired and ready ready to do something else. Um, you know, I gave every absolutely everything 
that you had that, that I had and and um and you know a closed ended procedural show yes it had serialized character elements in it uh, that I pushed really hard to get in there but um you know that that became you didn't that become became repetitive. A, you didn't become a writer to become a technician right you weren't standing there watching uh, you know sex sex lies uh to um to in the end only do that thing yes. right and so uh you know i watched i mean i know then you left to do your own show that was very different and people had a really strong relationship to even though it didn't you know go yeah. on for very long were you glad that you went and did that Yes, I mean that was the, I went and did the nine. That yeah. was a great experience, and you know I collaborated with my sister, which was uh, you know amazing, and um, I you know really really proud of that show, and just you know thirteen episodes, and it just uh, you know bad luck, bad timing. And when when you when you when you finished that show, and I imagine that was the first time you were able to catch your breath, yeah, because you went right from one show into the other. Right. Show. Now you're like thirty four, thirty five years old. And did you have a moment, and, you, and by then you knew you didn't have to work for the next few years if you didn't want to. You were in a position that, you know, of, okay, I can be whatever I want to be here in this town on a certain level. How how did you go about figuring out what that meant for you? What you wanted to do, how you wanted to spend your time? Um, so it was, I don't know, I was, uh, I, was th I think it was 36-ish or so, and... The nine, you know, didn't make it, and that was crushing, really crushing. I mean, to this day, it's a, store, a sore spot for me. Um, and I went on a vacation, and I actually, I made a mistake. This, I made a big mistake, I think, in probably what I decided to do. Or it was a mistake that happened also because certain things fell a certain way. But I... Um, it was, I, was, I was in my fifth year at Warner Brothers, and I had to decide whether I was going to stay there or move somewhere else. And um, I should have taken a, a very long vacation and thought about it. And instead, I sort of rushed through meeting all, with all the other studios and, you know, I think made a, um, a rushed decision to to leave Warner's and, and sign a three-year thing at NBC which was a very it was very lucrative sure and it felt like oh this is a place that's coveting me and that that's all fun and exciting it's a place that's new and I had felt I felt burned by uh, it was a short side decision because I was basing it on only the last previous experience I had one thing that was cancelled and they didn't protect me enough and exactly screw you yes I, they didn't protect me enough I felt like I felt like the network didn't give a sh when it went down because it was produced by Warners. And so, and I felt like if it was an ABC show produced by ABC, they would have given it more of a chance. And I don't want to experience that again. And um, so let me, I'm going to go to a place where it's vertically integrated. Of course, would I didn't factor in. It was, now you're limited to one network. There's only one place and to sell it. they control the whole thing. They control everything. And then you're at the at the whims of the vagaries of, the, of of who's in charge and and then in the next three years at NBC it was a you know mess it was a mess and, and you actually um, rode the highs and lows of that you felt it all you weren't able to sort of insulate yourself emotionally from it because you you had no healing time right uh, right is that you so you were just in it I literally closed the deal with NBC while I was in the airport in New Zealand What's landing for the beginning of my vacation what I should have done was take the vacation 
well, let mean, my guard down and really think about it. But what's that about for guys, bright as you are, who made the big decision of his life when he finally got to go away uh, as a you know 19-year-old, 20-year-old? What do you think it was that made you still um, sort of like uh, access your ambition as though you hadn't become successful yet and you need, need, need that stuff? I don't know. It's, I mean... You know, uh, that would be that would be something for the therapist couch a little bit, and that would I think I was so, you know, you just don't think clearly when you're exhausted. Sure. And um, and also, you know, my agent was saying, you know, now's the time, you know, now's you're still hot off of the nine, you know, now's the time, and you know, I don't know what, what it'll be, what the atmosphere would be like in three months. So he kind of led me to and believe. And you were that at this that time, time were still. Sort of that kind of thing could influence your thinking because you were tired and you weren't thinking clearly. Yeah, and I generally, you know, I, I generally take when it comes to the business side of it, I take I take adv- advice from yes, from my but as an as an artist, you know, uh, and and obviously those business decisions, and they they said to you, you know, meet with Brockheim, they have an idea, so I understand why. It had gone well a lot. No, with, of course, with I'm saying yeah, me. I understand yeah. why, of yeah. course, and and in your shoes. It's completely understandable, other than if you were able to, like, go and walk on a beach for a long time and remember who you, like, why you wanted to be a writer. Yes. Did that, so did that moment ever then happen for you at the end of that deal? Because, like, how did you make the decision to stay engaging in television and not go make... Go make, uh, go make you know, David Chase finishes The Sopranos. Right. And he goes and makes a movie. Matt Weiner, I bet you, after Mad Men, even though he made the one that didn't work, is going to... Pro- I mean, you know, you're a movie fanatic. You know, you didn't say to me, I grew up watching these TV shows. You said, right. I grew up watching these movies. And then Sex, Lies, and Videotape is this transitional... Like, this, this moment that, that was transformational. Have you... And, and I'm just wondering, what is it about television that you love or that keeps drawing you back? Well, back then, I think it was a you know, exhausted and exhausted and kind of knee jerk decision. And there was a lot of money on the table and it was the time. And I said, if I take a year off, what it'll be like, cause I, I did want to take a year off. I said, if I take a year off and we wait and uh, what will it be like? And he said, I, I don't think it'll be the same climate. And, uh, you know, if you ask a barber, if you need a haircut, the answer is always, always yes. 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 So, so yeah. Uh, uh, so that was, it was, yeah, it was, um, it was, you right. Know, I learned a lot from that bet, from that poor decision making process. I also couldn't have predicted that Kevin Riley, who I really respected, who I worked with, was sure. going to get fired before my deal started, uh, and that that I mean, whirlwind that happened. Your decision is sort happen. of unassailable yeah. on all rational um, right. reasons, right? Financially, and just sort of like understanding the way the business worked. But uh, what I'm what I'm trying to get at, because I I can tell watching your new show that you really care about it. But what I'm trying to get at is how did you. At the end of that, did you did you have you gone through this thing where you've sat down and said, "Do I want to make television? Why do I want to make television? Do I want to try to make movies? Why?" Or have you still not allowed yourself to like get off the thing and and think about it? No, I think I went into that deal, and I don't think I I don't think I had a great idea in those three years. Um, wow, it was a go- it was a golden handcuffs, you right. know. I mean, it was also. A, a rotating group of of new executives. The writer strike interrupted everything sure. for five months during those three years. So it was kind of um, now. What I did do though, while I was getting paid an awful lot of money, and they weren't allowed to assign me to someone else's show, which was part of you know the, the beauty of that deal. I did write a couple of features, 
which right. they were on its back, which they were essentially paying me to do. So I, what well, I did get back into being able to explore the feature world that that muscle. Um, I didn't take any jobs, but I wrote I you wrote, wrote some, some specs. specs. Um, one of which is, you know, I'm really, really proud of and got a lot of great response. And it just uh, is it a big movie or a small movie? Um, both. It's um, it's it's about Shakespeare and uh, Francis Bacon, and uh, with the premise that Francis Bacon is the real author of the of right. the Shakespeare plays. Um, and it got great response. It was one of the, I think, one of the best things I've written. And um, we started to go to try to do something with it, and then turn it. Roland Emmerich had, Roland's had, movie. had you got to wait another ten years, yeah. because of Roland's movie. Yeah. So, oh, so you got to send me the script. Could I read it? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to read it. Absolutely, I'd love to read your take on that. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't even bring myself to go see his movie. It was too, it was, <laughs> it was too painful. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I mean, that happens to all, all it happens all to everybody. Us. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you get out ahead, and sometimes you don't. Yeah. I remember the day that Levine and I finished Rounders, the script. That day, you know, slaving away. No, it's our first thing, uh, right on spec. And the day that we finished it, the very day, Variety had an article that David Mamet and Al Pacino had just committed to remake, to do a sequel to The Cincinnati Kid, which is a poker movie. Right. And we thought we were dead. And then we just, luckily, we had the script and they didn't have their script yet. And we were able to get out ahead of it. And, I, I, you know, if we were four months later, um, I wouldn't be sitting here doing a podcast at the bottom rung of show business. But uh, <laughs> that never would have that never would have been able to happen. None of it. Um, so you wrote a couple of scripts, and did right. you? And then the slow um, was it the slow sort of pace, reaction, difficulty of penetrating the feature world at when you were used to this fast paced, um, you know, basically being able to do what you wanted in TV. Is that part of what framed your decision and where you want to spend most of your time? Oh, to go back to TV, you mean? Yeah. Um, yes, and, and the feature business has changed so much um, since the time that I started with Out of Trace where, you know, you could still write character-driven movies and you could still, um, you know, the studios were still at least interested in those kinds of movies. That's all completely gone away for the most part. So, um, so that's changed so much. I mean, I haven't... Um, given up on the movies you know I, I still will uh, you know I'm doing a a script on assignment um, it's kind of it's an indie but um, and I have a spec that I wrote that's something that I'm going to try to get off the ground for me to direct in the, in the indie you world wanna, that's so. what I was going to say do you want to go direct a small movie yeah I have one you know it's like a four or five million dollar movie we're casting it now and hopefully we'll shoot it in the spring oh that's great so you're going to shoot during your hiatus that's that's the plan yeah so let's talk about how this show, The Last Ship, came together. Like, um, as I told you, um, I watched the pilot, um, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, you know, the surprises. The show felt both um, old-fashioned in a really great way and also dealing with uh, really current issues on a lot of different levels. And, I, I was, you know, obviously there was this little moment at the beginning of it that I, I, I loved, um which is you are dealing with familiar archetypes on a certain level. There's the, you know, scientist who's beautiful. There's this, you know, sturdy captain. And then you have um, this uh, officer, this woman, come up to the captain and in a crucial moment um, mention her girl being worried about her girlfriend back mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a great way to sort of say, I'm, I'm telling a story about right now. 
uh, as something that that feels yes, we're dealing with these archetypes. But uh, if you trust me, uh, this isn't going to feel like the show your parents would have watched. Was that conscious on on your part to to tell it in a way that felt like very contemporary? I think um, we wanted to have a diverse group of people on that ship, and um, we wanted it to represent what's going on now. And um, it seemed natural to have a homosexual character on, on, on the ship and not make a big deal about it. That's what was great. Yeah, it wasn't like there was no sting in the soundtrack. Right. It didn't suddenly become about, can we keep you on? It was just, hey, man, this is the, this is the world that you're watching. That was awesome. And and it also felt like it would say something about those two characters, you know, that she trusted the captain enough to have told him. Since since Don't Ask, Don't Tell went away, that she would have told him, they would have talked about it, it told you that the captain's not uncomfortable with it. Yeah, told we, you we, don't, we don't have to be uncomfortable with it. She's comfortable with herself. It's all good. Um, and, you know, that's about as much as we'll deal with it. So has your... Um, the, what's the name of the guy you, you created the show with? Steve Kane. And you said you grew up with him and went to college with him. Uh, we met in college. And freshman what's, year. what's he been doing um, this whole time? Well, it's interesting. We came out to uh, uh, to L.A. together. Um, we lived together for a couple of years. And we went different routes. He went to USC Film School. Um, and uh, and I went, you know, the I'm going to scratch my way PA route. Um, so he, you know, had done some... Uh, gotten some feature work early on and then uh, gradually, you know, like so many feature writers, moved into television and he was on The Closer for uh, seven years. He, you know, started at the, at at the bottom and, and rose up. So when um, uh, Michael Wright had the rights to the book, The Last Ship, he he had some meeting that I wasn't at with Bay and uh, and Bay's guys, uh, Andrew uh, Form and Brad Fuller, and uh, Michael Wright said, this is the book. I want you to do it. It's perfect for your brand. And then it became looking for a writer. So I got that call again from WME. So I have to say, they, they get a lot of credit. And Endeavor uh, became WME. So you've stayed right. the same place same the whole place time. Same place the whole time. Aries still your I told age. you I'm, I'm loyal. A loyal person. Unless Aries starts uh, sexually assaulting women in sports bars, you know, That's I'll it. probably be with That's him. Good. Um, so um, Aries called me and said, uh, you know, here's the idea. And it was the exact same feeling I had with Without a Trace and I just know that it's right the, the first phone call I, I said oh that's a show right. yeah get me in a room I, I see it I get it it has legs I can do it what and, were you doing right before that um, were you writing these features you were writing these I features I was writing these features I'm trying to remember because it was like two and a half years ago now two and a half three years really that's how I lo- it was two and a half years ago and the show's just coming on the air now yeah because it took a year to do the pilot, and then uh, it was always meant to be a summer show. So we it did, took we a didn't... year to write and then shoot the pilot. Right, shoot, post the pilot, and then and then um, you know they announced it at the upfronts last May, but they we, they weren't going to rush it into for September release. They always wanted it to be the summer, so we had a full year to do the next nine. So that's why it's been two and a half years. So how did it, so you get that phone call, and do you call your friend? I sat down with uh, Foreman Fuller. And um, and they run Michael Bay's TV company. They, they, yeah, they run his his uh, Platinum Dunes, which right. is a uh, you know I don't know how they they work it with uh, with each other, but they they produce a lot of the movies that that Bay doesn't direct. They produce that and, Bay's name is on. Right. Um, and um, they're great guys, and they just said, you know, we really want you to do this. And and um, I thought about it for a little while, and I had a bunch of other things going on and things that I wanted to to do and explore. 
Um, and another script that I was uh, working on with a, with another friend, a guy named, uh, do you know Ken Nolan? Sure, Black Hawk Down. of course. I don't know him, but he's a terrific writer. Um, so I was working on something with him. I was I was doing my movie <clears throat> stuff, and I was also writing a book. I forgot about that. That's what I was doing when I got the call. I, I wrote a, a, a novel. Uh, it's called Out of Range, and it came out last June. So I was very busy with that. So um, I wanted to have some help, and um, and I wanted to be able to to manage more than one thing at one time. Right. So you know, I sort of went through my mental rolodex, and um, I thought, you know, I'm so busy in life, and I barely get a chance to see my friends between, oh, between work awesome. and family. And I'm like, I, you know, Steve's a great buddy. I love to hang with him. And, and uh, he's a terrific writer. Um, he, they already knew him at TNT. And um, coincidentally, he and I had sort of discussed a similar post-apocalyptic idea like six years ago. Um, so I just thought, and I know we have a really great shorthand because we kind of grew up together you know, in college and just love the same movies. And I thought it would be, you know, a, a good collaboration. So, you know, I sat down with him. I said, here's here's what it is. What do you think? And the closer just happened to be ending. So it was perfect timing. And the show was already going to be at TNT? TNT owned the book. So it was completely generated from them. So it, it just seemed like a, a perfect confluence. And, you know, I called the Bay guys and I said, I'm going to bring in Steve and they were like, and right, you guys like, wrote great. the pilot together. We went and we pitched it to TNT together. We wrote the pilot together. We produced the pilot together, and it's been a, you know amazing, great collaboration. That's great. I mean, you know, the, the guy that I write and direct with, my best friend from when we were growing up on Long Island. So it's a, it is when you're working with a friend, if you have real trust with one another and real respect, it's an amazing opportunity. Yeah, I think um, because you really trust that the other person's there to pick you up. Uh, I don't know if that's how you feel. Yes, I, you know, I do. And it's, you know, like I said before, you need the help when you're producing a show. I mean, and I, you know, I get home with my kids, too. You know, I work 10 to 6. How? Are the two of you running the show? Yeah. And I mean, are you on set? Every, are you on, Was one of you on set and in post every day? Um, yeah, we sort of split up the duties. And, um, um you know, we were both in the writers' room almost all the time. We had because we had a very, very long writers' prep before we started shooting, and our, our and our shooting schedule got pushed a number of times. Um, so we ended up having we didn't have the crazy overlap of of production and post and writing. We had like four months to write nine scripts, so we had pretty much them all ready before we even shot any That's film. Great. So 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 it was very civilized. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's just having that that person that thinks like you to to work together on the stories and then you know having having that person to you know call the military and ask them this question talk to the scientists right. ask them this question hey i'm gonna you look at this visual effect i'm gonna go to set you know it, it's just such a luxury to have that what makes you i was gonna ask you but the 10 to 6 thing makes it make a little bit more sense were you at all hesitant to dive back in and really run another show having little kids and, and, a, and a life, did it scare you the way that it becomes, that it takes over your whole world? I was scared because it's consuming. And um, and that's why I said I'm only going to do cable and I'll only do a short order, 10, 12, 13 the most. Can't do 22. Just won't do that. Um, and uh, and then, you know, having help that you can trust, you know, those those two things made it feel like okay I, I can do this and still and you still know, have, have some a life sort of a life 
have a life, have a kids, and also be able to entertain other creative possibilities too. Can you give the one liner? I don't want to spoil. Like I, uh, I don't want to give a spoiler. I'm sure you know how to express what the one liner of the show is for people uh, who should t- uh, tune in to watch it. Uh, okay, the one liner. How would you um, explain what the show is? Because I, 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 I might have watched. Uh, you know, I might give something away that I don't want to give away. A, a global pandemic has wiped out eighty percent of the world, and uh, alone. Uh, United States naval destroyer has been removed from the hot zone the whole time and uh, and has a scientist on board that might have the ingredients for the cure. And have you guys, I'll say that the pilot is really propulsive, really engaging, um, and asks really uh, important questions about du- you know, about duty and, and, and honor and sacrifice. And uh, um, I can see why the material was in- immediately interesting to you. Uh, I'm, I'm, can you? How do you keep up? Can you keep up the pace of that kind of plot twist and character work? For can you see how it continues to fold in on itself over the next couple of years? Yes, I mean it's just something that I knew when Ari called me with the basic premise. I just said, "Oh, there's legs on this. It's five. It's at least five years, seven years, eight years. You, you see it." And we were able to do it. And your for- gift is that you see it. You're able to somehow see it, or maybe others. Uh, wouldn't yeah or it's just sometimes you have a confluence with an idea that is just right for you or you know you just you know and if you don't see it you shouldn't do it you shouldn't try to force it you know um and i've done that i've done it where you know really great auspices you know good people involved i don't quite get this thing i'm going to try to force it and it, it doesn't come out it doesn't come out well um so yeah i mean you know this season it's 10 episodes and and each one has a a different flavor a different feel but it's all part of the same general propulsive a story of trying to find the cure and 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 they really we explore lots of different themes but at the same time it all feels like it's part of the same arc and we have a you know really cool cliffhanger for the end of the season that turns the show into kind of a different direction that you can see oh you know well, I'm not a worried. Great one. I mean, there's a great cliffhanger at the end of the uh, at the end of the pilot. That um, normally, you know, as a writer, you're watching these things, you know, what the turns are going to be. Or I'll tell you, I did not see that turn coming. That's good. And I thought that was really great. And I um, interested to see how it how it plays out because I want to know if that person's partner understands. And so I thought that was really excellent. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's always good to have that. Was that in the in book? A, oh no. I mean the the book. There's barely anything of the book in the show. I mean, all due respect to the book. Um, the book was written in the 80s. Right. It was about a nuclear war between U.S. and Russia, classic Cold War. And it's about a... The, the only similarities really between the show and the book is that it's about a Navy ship destroyer with a captain and a crew. And But in the book, they're floating around... Um, and it's a much more internal existential crisis of how do we survive. So you guys came up with the pandemic. Yes. Um, you and your partner came up with the idea of the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, so you yes. just heard the one idea and then came up with the whole thing. You just heard the idea you heard that you said that makes sense was just there's a ship. I heard I heard the idea there's a ship, they're the lone ship, and I, I, I've always loved the sort of survivor stories. Sure. But, but what Steve and I figured out was, you know, we can't just make this a show where people are floating around having an existential crisis. Um, and also, we had to figure out what is the real, what's the real problem in 2014 that would have wiped out most of the world. And, and the nuclear, we looked it up. A nuclear war wouldn't even do it. Even in the worst case scenario, 40% of the world dies, and the rest of the people are 
are you know hanging in there you know you'd have pockets of countries that would would have completely they're esca- sad though. the rest it. of the people are sad they're re- they're really sad i mean they're you know i mean except whatever the small percentage of sociopaths but the rest yes if, are sad. if two percent of the people are going to go away in the leftovers and the 98 percent are going to be sad you know then i <laughs> yeah. think probably in the 60 40 scenario the 60 a would lot be sad. of sadness yeah um but but, but we what well, we wanted to have a propulsion and a drive and also differentiate it from Star Trek and Battlestar, which are great shows, but what we have is there's a huge problem, and they can solve it. And you might have the cure. And they can solve it. And that that gives an urgency. That has a huge amount of energy and a huge huge amount of uh, uh, forward thrust to it. You feel it when you're watching it, and I'm glad that I have the DVDs in the next two episodes so that I can watch them quickly. Um, Lastly, and I so appreciate your your doing this, I I really can't believe that... uh, we hardly know each other, having heard each other's names for uh, 20 years. Yeah, amazing. 18 years. But um, So you got these kids out in L.A. Were they rooting for the Kings? Or were they rooting for the Rangers? My son decided halfway through he's rooting for the Kings. I think and it was what did because... That, how did you... So what, man? That must have just killed you. No, I was, I was proud of him that he... You know, because he, he, you know, he's still at that age where he reveres his daddy. So I was proud of him that he had the, had the balls to root for the other team. And it it's, might be the beginning of him, his friends being more important than me because it was his best friend was rooting for the Kings, and I think that's what turned him. And then he was like, that's it, I want the Kings to win. Yeah. And has he been happy? Did he have a moment of saying to you, like, ah, sorry? He's like, yeah, the Kings won, you know. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't really crying in my soup about it. The Rangers are kind of like my third, you know, third team, yeah. fourth team. I'm, I mean, I'm much more of a baseball, basketball, football guy than a hockey guy, so. Uh, well, you didn't list basketball when you listed your teams. No, I didn't. It was. Are you a Knicks fan? As much as one can be, given you know. Fair enough. Given how fair inf- how infuriating they are. And do you ever write about sports ever a- anymore? Other than you know, no, I, I no, I should. I would love to. I can't believe you don't write for Grantland. Which you know, Bill Simmons, uh, who I think is the best. You know. Bill's the Bill's the best. Are you kidding me? Bill's the best. And well, you know, you'll put in a good word for me. I think you've just done it for yourself. Uh, thanks, Hank Steinberg. Guys, watch uh, the Last Ship on TNT. What night of the week? Uh, Sunday nights at uh, at nine o'clock. Although I just found out today, six o'clock on the West Coast. If you have Directv, it's a crazy <laughs> Directv <laughs> doesn't channel. if you have doesn't you run have, doesn't run at the right time. You, All my if, friends in LA are going to show up at nine o'clock. It's not going to be there. But if you have cable, uh, if you have cable, it's watch nine it o'clock at on nine o'clock Sundays, on yeah. Sundays uh, uh, on TNT. And um, I mean, honestly, what else are you doing at 9 o'clock? The football games are over. That's right. And uh, there are no football games now when it's on. It's the summertime. But uh, watch the show. Uh, Hank, thanks for doing this. Sure. Thanks, Brian. All right. Be, uh, I'm, if you want to find me, I'm Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Are you on social media? Are you on Twitter? Sadly not. That's why you're so productive. That might Because you're not. That might help. I think you just explained everything. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.